The White House is about to release a new strategy for federal cybersecurity. It'll detail how agencies should move to zero-trust architectures. You've heard that. This as the Office of Management and Budget eyes big changes on how people access federal systems. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, this sounds like a follow-up to that last May federal executive order, White House executive order on cyber. What's going to be in it and when's it coming out? That's right. Well, the executive order directed agencies to adopt a zero-trust architecture, and the draft zero-trust strategy was released last fall. We're hearing that the final version could come out as soon as today, or at least this week. Eric Mills, senior advisor to OMB's chief information officer, spoke about the strategy at a conference hosted by the Better Identity Coalition this week, who would only say that it's coming out, quote-unquote, soon. But he offered some details and high-level principles that he confirmed are in the final plan. And the big picture is the strategy is intended to shift agencies to a new architecture where instead of simply signing into a network gives you access to everything on the network, you're continuously being validated for every stage of that digital interaction. So Mills said agencies will need to provide OMB with multi-year plans for moving to that kind of architecture. And it will include timelines for things like adopting multi-factor authentication, which is, of course, a big part of Zero Trust. But he said the strategy goes beyond just simple deadlines. It's not just about multi-factor authentication. We're looking at a major architectural shift for the federal government. And so we know that's a multi-year process. We're trying to both design a, an oversight and, and timing process that reflects the urgency with which we need to move and the reality of the size of the work that is happening. What I would say is we're trying to, to balance both some short-term urgency as well as some long-term urgency, which is tricky to do, but I think is the reality of what we're doing. Yeah, and all this while the government is still only halfway onto the EIS contract, but that's another picture. What are some of the big goals that he was talking about, Justin? Well, this was an identity conference, so uh, one of the key priorities he pointed to is improving defenses against phishing attacks. And and that is, of course, when a cyber attacker tries to get you to click on a link to steal your identity, your login credentials, or your credit card information, things along those lines. Mills said OMB will want agencies to adopt multi-factor authentication and make sure that the methods are resistant to phishing. So some uh, examples he gave of multi-factor that are not resistant to phishing include just getting text messages that allow you to log into your account or push notifications. He said that the federal government already has one good method, PIV cards, which are strong phishing-proof authentication measure, a physical card, of course. He also said agencies uh, will be required to adopt standards called FIDO2, which use cryptographic standards and biometrics to authenticate you. An example is the face ID on your iPhone. So things like that. And about this idea of citizens accessing public services, this was mentioned in that executive order and with reference to the login.gov. And so will the public have to have all of these technologies to get onto Medicare? What Mills really stressed is that it's about providing the public with options and not shutting down accessibility and equity for accessing government services. So the Zero Trust strategy will mostly be focused on the federal enterprise. But he said that that internal enterprise is unavoidably intertwined with the public-facing side of government. And OMB will require public-facing services that use multi-factor authentication to give the public multiple options for that authentication doesn't necessarily have to be biometrics if you don't want to give up your biometrics. So 
the key idea is imposing, not imposing security restrictions that would lead to less accessibility. It's not that easy to draw up clear lines between enterprise and public context when it comes to this stuff, particularly because in the federal government, we have a lot of services that sort of cross both of these lines. There's a lot of partner interactions that the federal government has. There's a lot of use cases where the federal government has services that are not used by the whole general public, but by specific subsets. Maybe they're contractors, maybe they're state and local agencies. It's going to be important for us to be able to use the same things as people span different systems. And what about the end of the password? Is there any possibility in all of this that the password, which they've been talking about disappearing for a long time, will actually go away? Well, Mills said OMB is, quote unquote, enthusiastic about the potential to leave passwords behind. He said officials see that as the future of where government should go. But it's unclear when that future will be here because, of course, many systems still require passwords. And and so in the meantime, OMB will be updating password requirements for agencies. He said that's one of the things that they will be firm is on following best practices. And he specifically called out requirements for employees to change their password every 90 or 120 days. He, he also called out the special composition requirements for passwords, you know, using upper lowercase special characters. NIST has actually come out, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has actually come out and said that arbitrary password rotations are not effective, nor are those special composition requirements. They often lead users to just reusing simple passwords that they can easily remember. And that's a security concern. OMB will be also pushing those types of updated standards on passwords to agencies as well. Right. And also those complicated passwords do lead to an increase in spending on post-it notes. And the idea of zero trust for federal systems, I guess the art here is to have zero trust without making it crazy for people to get into systems. That That is the balancing act that I think you'll you'll see in this forthcoming strategy document that, that agencies will, of course, have to try to follow. They don't want to make it any more difficult for their employees or for for uh, the public to access their systems of course that's already a problem in terms of accessibility for for public public uh, facing systems so that's something that they can't make any worse but mills said that you know this could be an opportunity to really revisit how we access the digital world and these these givens that we have kind of just taken for granted over the last couple of decades in using online systems they're, they're really, there's an opportunity here to enable some very new user experiences. Like We haven't really had the opportunity to revisit assumptions around how users log into systems for a long time. There, there's some extremely standard UX patterns for logging into websites um, that we at this point, you know, many people have sort of stopped thinking about. Well, interesting. You know, I paid for a Danish and coffee at Amazon today just holding my palm over a little reader and everything else was there. So I guess anything's possible. Yeah, I guess so. And I think the key is to that that OMB is stressing is is provide people with options because not everybody necessarily wants to do that, but that, that is kind of the future. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And you'll be there when that strategy actually comes out, correct? Yeah, we're, we're waiting with bated breath. All right. And Justin will bring it to you. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. 
Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do 
set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.